Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. He used to smuggle drugs. Then he got caught and he became one of the government's most valuable informants in the war against cocaine. But last night in Louisiana, Barry Seal's enemies caught up with him and killed him. Tonight, three men are in custody. NBC's Brian Ross reports that Seal was about to testify for the government once again. Authorities believe last night's machine gun killing of top drug informant Barry Seal was ordered by drug bosses in Medellin, Colombia, who sent five men to Baton Rouge to kill Seal. Seal's son, Barry Jr., one of five children, was restrained by police, who said the gunman had waited in ambush for Seal at a Salvation Army shelter, where Seal had been sentenced by a federal judge on a drug charge to do community service. Seal was a tough guy TWA pilot who got caught smuggling cocaine and became one of the most important and daring undercover operatives, infiltrating the top Colombian drug operations. In a recent interview, Seal said he knew he was risking his life. The old saying, if you can't stand the heat, don't work in the kitchen. I can take the pressure. It was Seal who posed as a smuggler and flew into Nicaragua and took these pictures, showing Colombian drug dealers and Sandinista officials loading cocaine on his plane. Seal busted up the Colombian connection in the Caribbean country of Turks and Caicos, setting up a payoff meeting on videotape that led to the arrest and conviction of the country's prime minister. And Seal was scheduled to be the key witness against this man, Jorge Ochoa, the top Colombian drug boss, now in jail in Spain, about to be extradited to the United States. Authorities say the Ochoa drug organization was responsible for the bombing of the U.S. Embassy in Bogota last year, the assassination of Colombia's attorney general, and now the murder in Louisiana of the man who was perhaps the most important undercover drug informant ever. Brian Ross, NBC News. Hello and welcome to episode 143 of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcasts production. On this week's episode, I'll begin dissecting the craziness that went on in Arkansas in the early 1980s. One of the regular guests on the show is Nick from the True Crime Garage podcast, and I always tell people to listen to the Boys on the Tracks episodes if they have never heard their show. And one of the things that is so fascinating about their episodes is all the different rabbit holes that you can go down. And that is a great series for you to pretty much spend the next few weeks investigating what went on in Mena, Arkansas. And I am going to focus mostly on Barry Seal, who was a prolific drug smuggler and a CIA informant, and the connection to the Mena Intermountain Airport. You may be asking yourself, what could Arkansas have to do with Colombian drug smugglers? Well, it turns out a lot. And if you think of a hotbed of corruption, then you should look no further than the state of Arkansas and someone by the name of Oliver North. An extensive joint investigation by the FBI, Arkansas State Police, 
and the IRS revealed that Barry Seal used the MENA airport for quote-unquote smuggling activities from late 1980 until March 1984. He was a pilot for TWA in the early 1970s and was quit, quit or was fired, according to what you read, to fly drugs and arms around the world. Barry Seal became a pilot when he was only 16 years old, and once he received that license, he started smuggling weapons right away. Deborah Seal, one of his wife's, claims that he started drug smuggling in 1975, and five years later, he was involved in the Medellin cartel, which was led by the infamous Pablo Escobar. His nickname became El Gordo. Barry Seal was arrested on December 10, 1979, for smuggling cocaine. By the late 1970s, Louisiana police were tracking the smuggler they called the Fat Man. So, Seal moved his operation to Mina. According to schoolhistory.co.uk, by the time he moved to Mina, Seal was not working solo. In fact, over 60 people were working for him. Now, Preston Pete, a reporter for High Times, which is the perfect magazine to be covering a story such as this, wrote an extensive piece on Barry Seal in 2002. He wrote, He was no longer using planes to get drugs across countries and states. He owned a Learjet, helicopters, surplus military cargo planes, two ships with sophisticated navigational and communications equipment, numerous cars and vans. Moreover, the technology he used in order to communicate with his collaborators were highly advanced and included ultra-high-frequency radios with scramblers, pocket-sized encoders for telephones, and high-frequency satellite communication devices like those used on Air Force B-52s. However, the devices used in his ships were not less valuable. In fact, he equated the tools for his navigation to the ones used on nuclear submarines. Clarice Loffrey wrote, a long article on Mr. Seal in 2017, and she wrote, By 1983, Seal had flown over 100 flights carrying tons of cocaine and smuggling into the United States close to 3 to $5 billion. Seal's downfall became when he was arrested in Florida when he was caught attempting to smuggle 200,000 phony quaaludes into the United States. Now, Seal did admit the crimes that he committed throughout the years. However, he was charged with 10 years in prison, and according to an FBI agent, the criminal was not only desperate to avoid jail time, but also offered to name the people involved in the crimes in order to discount his penalty. Preston Pete says it was his desperation that led him to Washington, where he met George Bush's vice presidential task force and where he was involved in a sting operation. On June 25, 1984, the CIA placed hidden cameras in SEAL's 123K plane that was directed to Los Brasiles in Nicaragua. The photos that were taken show some Nicaraguan soldiers, Barry SEAL, Pablo Escobar, Frederico Vaughn, Emil Camp, who was SEAL's co-pilot, placing over 100,000 kilos, or I should say 1,000 kilos, of cocaine onto the plane. Seal flew back to Florida, handed over the cocaine and the film to the government officials. Since Seal had decided to collaborate with the USA forces, 
his sentence in jail was reduced to a mere six months of supervised probation. However, he was obliged to spend every night from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. at the Salvation Army House in Baton Rouge, and that was according to Lawfrey. Daniel Levine wrote in 2017 for Heavy.com, when the cocaine had been put on Seal's plane and never arrived in Florida and was instead handed over to the CIA as part of the plan, the Medellin cartel suspected that Seal was playing both hands. In 1984, their suspicion was confirmed when the Washington Times released an article that discussed Seal's, quote, infiltration in the Medellin cartel in Panama, proving that the Nicaraguan government was involved in the drug trade. While collaborating with the U.S. government, Seal transported a total of 6,000 pounds of cocaine from the Colombian cartel. For each flight, Seal was paid by the cartel around three-quarters of a million dollars, and on one occasion, the DEA allowed the pilot to keep 575000 And of course, this is according to Levitt. Other people in Mina knew about Seal's profession, and a local former sheriff claimed in 1988, quote, I can arrest an old hillbilly out there with a pound of marijuana, and a local judge and jury would send him to the penitentiary. But a guy like Seal flies in and out with hundreds of pounds of cocaine, and he stays free. Seal moved his smuggling operation from Baton Rouge to Mina, Arkansas, where about 5,800 people lived. And I mentioned this was because the heat was getting a little too close to him in Baton Rouge. And in the 1980s, the Mina airport was the reported base of drug smuggling and money laundering, as well as arms smuggling. And this was according to the Encyclopedia of Arkansas. And Katie Zakruski a reporter for the Arkansas Money and Politics, wrote a great article about the history of the Amina Airport on April 23rd, or April 13th, 2021. And she wrote that the airport's inception was militaristic in nature, but it has morphed into include charter-based and private aeronautical travel and repair. The airfield was originally built in 1942 when the Civil Aviation Authority determined a need for an emergency land strip between Fort Smith and Texarkana. As one of the only flat spots in a mountainous portion of the state, Mina was designated as the site for the airport. And again, Mina is only approximately 160 miles west of Little Rock. And currently, Mina... Intermountain Municipal Airport has two runways and it, a 5,000-foot paved runway that is in the same location as the original one. And this was where SEAL moved much of that smuggling operation in 1980s, in the early 1980s. The Arkansas Democrat Gazette reported, after a myriad of requests filed under the Federal Freedom of Information Act, in July 2020, the FBI released more than 1,000 pages of its file on SEAL. About 25 pages of that trove refer to Arkansas or MENA. Unfortunately, many names in the documents were redacted. But they did state that the Sandinistas overthrew the Nicaraguan president, Anastasio Somoza Dabale, in 1979, ending 46 years of dictatorship, by the Somoza family. 
So counter-revolutionaries, known as Contras, were battling the Sandinistas, and the U.S. was covertly backing the Contras. Quote, according to some reports, the Mina Airport from 1981 to 1985 was a major transit point for the entrance of cocaine and heroin into the United States, according to Sherwood. And again, this is written from the Encyclopedia of Arkansas. The estimated value of the narcotics smuggled was, as I mentioned, 3 to $5 billion. For a portion of this time, the alleged ringleader of the smuggling, SEAL, appeared to have been working with the CIA and the DEA. The goal was to expose the involvement of the Nicaraguan Sandinista regime as a major supplier of cocaine from Colombia. One mission involved a C-123 cargo plane that was outfitted at the Mina airport. And I mentioned this earlier. Quote, the aircraft flew with various cameras used to obtain photographic evidence of the Sandinistas in the act of smuggling narcotics. Allegations later surfaced that many of the gun shipments sent to Nicaragua as part of the Iran-Contra affair were sent from the Mina Intermountain Municipal Airport. In essence, they go on to state, not only was the airport used to smuggle illegal drugs into the United States, but it was also a departure point for weapons used to arm the Contras in Nicaragua. According to a 1988 Senate Foreign Relations Committee report, SEAL's associates at the MENA airport were also being investigated. Quote, Despite the availability of evidence sufficient for an indictment on money laundering charges and over the strong protests of state and federal law enforcement officials, the cases were dropped. The apparent reason was the prosecution might have revealed the national security information, even though all the crimes, which were the focus of the investigation, occurred before SEAL became a federal informant. Quote, in other words, the charges of drug smuggling and money laundering were not enough to warrant the release of information about the use of the airport in the Iran-Contra affair, according to Sherwood for the Arkansas Encyclopedia. The FBI in Little Rock began investigating SEAL's operation at the MENA airport all just a little bit after the start of 1984. So clearly they knew what he was doing, but they just didn't really pay attention or just didn't write it down. The name of the other person under investigation was redacted, according to the papers that were released in 2020. Quote, at the time, SEAL started cooperating with the DEA Miami. He had established a base at the Rich Mountain Aviation and frequent contact with subjects, according to the document. But there were still questions regarding the MENA airport and the people who worked there, according to the FBI memo. According to the memo, Little Rock FBI is attempting to establish that redacted, modified, maintained, and stored SEAL's aircraft with knowledge that he was involved in cocaine smuggling activities prior to SEAL's plea bargaining agreement on March 24, 1984. FBI agents in Miami wanted to know what SEAL might have told people at Rich Mountain Aviation regarding his smuggling activities, according to the FBI memo. A 1983 document referred to a telephone conversation between the FBI and Polk County Sheriff A.L. Hathaway, where Hathaway said an informant told him a, quote, narcotic smuggling operation was headquartered out of the MENA airport and that a man named Barry from Baton Rouge was 
was in charge of it. That sounds pretty incriminating, if you ask me. The New York Times and West, West 57th, a CBS television news show, were working on stories about CIA activities at the MENA airport, according to a 1987 memo, memo from the FBI. The original information dates back to the activities of a pilot, Barry Seal, who is purported to have flown guns to South America from MENA and drugs back into the United States. The information indicates that SEAL was an informant for the DEA at the time, but also working as an operative for the CIA. During the past few years, the activity at the airstrip has aroused the interest of local law enforcement, who then attempted to conduct some investigations, but were blocked by the U.S. attorney. Governor Aza Hutchinson was U.S. attorney for Arkansas Western District in the early 1980s. Quote, I initiated a grand jury investigation in relation to money laundering through MENA Airport in 1985, Hutchinson told reporters. Quote, I resigned from the office in November of 1985, and my successor took over the investigation. I started it and pursued it, but was unable to complete it because I left the office. No investigation was blocked. Let's take a moment to hear from this week's sponsor, BetterHelp.com We may have moved past 2020, but 2021 is still looking fairly grim. But today I'm happy... The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me, Murder in House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. i to tell you about BetterHelp.com. Because if there's anything holding you back or interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And it's really convenient because in this current state that we live in, it just has to be. So now you can get help on your own time at, at your own pace. All you have to do is schedule a secure video or phone session, or you can chat and text with your therapist. BetterHelp really is there for you. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. And if for whatever reason you aren't happy with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time. So if you're suffering from depression or anxiety, stress, anger, relationship issues, heck, you're not getting a good night's sleep, or have LGBT matters, or just low self-esteem, they literally have a licensed professional counselor for you. And of course, everything you share is confidential. The thing I like the most is it's actually affordable. And Who Killed listeners get 10% off their first month with the discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com WHO. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs, and then you get matched with a counselor you'll love. Again, for 10% off, go to BetterHelp.com WHO. All right, we are back. 
Jack Anderson and Dale Van Atta were all over the goings-on with Seal and Mina. So they wrote in the Washington Post on February 28, 1989, quote, Seal is believed to have introduced the Medellin cocaine cartel of Colombia to the United States. He flew drugs and arms in and out of the Arkansas town of Mina in the Ozarks. In 1986, after Seal became a snitch for the Drug Enforcement Administration, the cartel gunned him down in Baton Rouge. Just what an arrangement Seal had with the U.S. government is unclear. Investigators in Louisiana and Arkansas say Seal was allowed to continue smuggling drugs and guns while he spied for the government. Arkansas State Police suspect the airport in Mina is still a hub for illegal arms and drug trafficking. Frustrated investigators told an associate, Jim Lynch, that the full story on Seal could make a mockery of the administration's war on drugs. In April 1986, two months after Seal was killed, two Louisiana State Police investigators blamed the DEA for failing to protect Seal from the cartel. They said the DEA allowed Seal to pose as a drug smuggler undercover and continue his lucrative business as a real smuggler at the same time. Seal testified at one point that he made $500,000 during one year as an informer. The Louisiana Attorney General asked then-U.S. Attorney General Edwin Meese III to investigate the handling of Seal. Meese never responded. Seal left a resume unrivaled in the smuggling business. When he was arrested in 1985 or 84, he had no problem offering his services to the DEA. Arkansas officials have pushed for a federal grand jury to investigate Seal's enterprise and any remnants that might be operating in MENA. But the U.S. attorney in Arkansas says there's not enough evidence. Rep. Bill Alexander smells a cover-up and has suggested convening a state grand jury. The House Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime sent a sleuth to MENA last year. The SEAL case is expected to be a centerpiece in the committee's upcoming report on how the federal government interferes in local law enforcement. One Arkansas state police official told the paper that he turned over a box of documents to the Federal Bureau of Investigation on SEAL and Associates. The FBI later claimed the documents were lost. Scattered evidence indicates SEAL was part of the Nicaraguan Contra Resupply Network. A plane carrying weapons and piloted by Eugene Hassenfuss was crashed in Nicaragua in 1986, and it actually belonged to SEAL. And after SEAL died, investigators from the IRS raided his offices in Mina and seized financial records. And the IRS reported that SEAL was being kept under wraps, but they had learned little. And again, Contra-Mina connection. The airport came into existence to a large degree because there were a lot of repair and maintenance shops in the town the size of Mina. And however that may be, Karen Zakruski wrote in 2021, it was the early 1980s when the airport's reputation became infamous. And again, this is because of Barry Seal, who we've been talking about this whole time. And that is just because of the fact that he was trafficking tons and tons of marijuana and cocaine into the United States. As I mentioned before, Asa Hutchinson was the attorney general. She was appointed to the Western District by Ronald Reagan. And according to 
Duncan, who was William Duncan, an investigator for the IRS, and Russell Welch of the Arkansas State Police, they were sent to keep an eye on the town for any signs of drug trafficking or money laundering. Now, many investigations and police officers have spent hours staking out the areas surrounding the field, and they've seen illegal fuel tanks being installed on SEAL's aircraft before he took off quickly into the night with no lights on to avoid his arrival or departure. So, here you have some reporters in 1989 for the Washington Post acknowledging that there may be a significant cover-up in Arkansas. And I think it's very important to state this is the Washington Post. And in part two, you'll hear a different aspect of how the Washington Post got involved with this story. But basically, it's very interesting and it does smell of a cover-up. So, again, federal agencies failed to make law enforcement in Arkansas and Louisiana aware of Seal's extensive brushes with the law. He was, you know, a local drug runner and they couldn't imagine that he was involved in anything that was as great as the Iran-Contra scandal. I mean, who would ever think that in Arkansas? As I said in the beginning of the episode, what does Arkansas have to do with Columbia? Well, a lot of cocaine, apparently. And it was eventually on February 19th, 1986, a small group of gunmen would murder Seal in a Baton Rouge parking lot at the halfway house where a federal judge had ordered him to stay while on probation. Reagan would go on to use evidence gathered from SEAL's travels and drug smuggling as evidence against the Sandinistas while failing to mention SEAL at all. According to the Encyclopedia of Arkansas, the MENA International Airport is now known nationally and internationally as the central location in a controversy over illegal drug shipments and weapons during the Iran-Contra affair. According to some reports... They were the major hub from 1981 to 1985. Again, this is just, it's crazy to think that they were not informing the local city that, hey, we're bringing in, not only we're bringing in drugs, we're bringing in weapons and we're sending weapons to Nicaragua. And yeah, we're just going to basically use your town as a proxy. And yeah, pretty cool. Not really at all. But hey, you know, that's the government and they do what they want to do. And again, as I mentioned before, you know, that one mission that got the photographic evidence was that C-123 cargo plane that had been outfitted with cameras. And again, they just wanted to get evidence on the Sandinistas in the act of smuggling narcotics. Again, totally crazy. So three former presidents of the United States have actually faced criticism over the alleged illegal activities at the airport. Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and one Bill Clinton. According to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, all charges and cases dealing with Barry Seal and others with connections to the Mina Intermountain Municipal Airport were dropped due to potential national security risks. In other words, the charges of drug smuggling and money laundering were not enough to warrant the release of information about the use 
of the airport in the Iran-Contra affair. And I believe I did mention that before. Now, George, <clears throat> Mr. George W. Bush, H.W. Bush, I should say, during his term as president, did not attempt to prosecute any people involved in either the drug smuggling or the arms dealing. Clinton was the governor of Arkansas during the time period when these actions allegedly had occurred. No public officials ever acted to investigate or prosecute those involved, at least not publicly. And again, this has led to a variety of conspiracy theories. Now, on October 18, 1994, Mika Morrison was a writer for the Wall Street Journal. And he put an article out that said, What do Bill Clinton and Oliver North have in common, along with the Arkansas State Police and the Central Intelligence Agency? All probably wish they had never heard of MENA. President Clinton was asked at his October 7th press conference about MENA, a small town and airport in the winds of western Arkansas. Sarah McClendon, a longtime Washington curmudgeon, renowned for her off-the-wall questions, wove a query around the charge that a base in the MENA was set up by Oliver North and the CIA in the 1980s and used to bring in plane load after plane load of cocaine for sale in the U.S., and then the profits then used to buy weapons for the Contras. Was he told as Arkansas governor? She asked. No, the president replied. Quote, they didn't tell me anything about that. The alleged events, quote, were primarily a matter for federal jurisdiction. The state really had next to nothing to do with it. The local prosecutor did conduct an investigation based on what was in the jurisdiction of the state law. The rest of it was under the jurisdiction of the United States attorneys, who were appointed successfully by previous administrations. We had nothing, zero, to do with it, unquote. It was Mr. Clinton's lengthiest remark on the murky affair since it surfaced nearly a decade ago in the middle of his long tenure as governor of Arkansas. And while the president may be correct to suggest that MENA is an even bigger problem for previous Republican administrations, he was wrong on just about every other count. The state of Arkansas had plenty to do with MENA, and Mr. Clinton left many unanswered questions behind when he moved to Washington. Anyone who thinks that MENA is not as serious should speak to William Duncan, a former IRS investigator who, together with the Arkansas State Police investigator Russell Welch, has fought a bitter tenure battle to bring the matter to light. All failed. Quote, the MENA investigations were never supposed to see the light of day, says Mr. Duncan, now an investigator with the Medicaid Fraud Division of the Office of Arkansas Attorney General Winston Bryant. Quote, investigations were interfered with and covered up, and the justice system was subverted. The mysteries of MENA center on the activities of Barry Seal. And again, at the height of his career, Seal was pretty much importing a close to a thousand pounds of cocaine per month. And it was in 1984 that he became an informant with the DEA. And then he flew that last drug sting operation under the guidance of one Oliver North. And according to Mr. Duncan and others, Mr. Clinton's allies in state government 
worked to suppress MENA investigations. In 1990, for example, when Mr. Bryant made MENA an issue in the race for attorney general, Clinton aide Betsy Wright warned the candidate to stay away from the issue, according to a CBS Evening News investigative report. Miss Wright denies the report. Yet, once in office, and after a few feints in the direction of an investigation, Mr. Bryant stopped looking into MENA. Documents obtained by the journal show that, as governor, Clinton's quest for the presidency gathered steam in 1992. His Arkansas allies took increasing interest in MENA. Marie Miller, then director of the Medicaid Fraud Division, wrote in an April 1992 memo to her files that she told Mr. Duncan of the attorney general's wish to sever any ties to the MENA matter because of the implication that the AG might be investigating the governor's connection. The memo says the instructions were pursuant to a conversation with Mr. Bryant's chief deputy, Royce Griffin. In an interview, Mr. Duncan said Mr. Griffin put him under intense pressure. Now, another memo Mr. Du- from Mr. Duncan to several high-ranking members of the attorney general staff in March 1992 notes that Mr. Duncan was instructed to remove all files concerning the MENA investigation from the AG's office. At the time, several Arkansas newspapers were known to be preparing FOIA requests aimed at Clinton's administration. A spokesman for Mr. Bryant, Lawrence Graves, said that he was not aware of the missing files or any pressure exerted on Mr. Duncan. In Arkansas, Mr. Graves said the attorney general does not have authority to pursue criminal cases. From February to May 1992, Mr. Duncan was involved in a series of meetings aimed at deciding how to use a $25,000 federal grant obtained by then-Rep. Bill Alexander for a MENA investigation. In a November 1991 letter to Arkansas State Police Commander Tommy Goodwin, Mr. Alexander urged at the current critical stage in the MENA investigation the money be used to briefly assign Mr. Duncan to the Arkansas State Police to pursue the case full-time with State Police Investigator Welch and to prepare a, quote, steady flow of information for Iran-Contra prosecutor Lawrence Walsh, who had received some MENA files from Mr. Bryant. According to Mr. Duncan's notes on the meetings, Mr. Clinton's aides closely tracked the negotiations over what to do with the money. Mr. Duncan says, a May 7, 1992 meeting with Colonel Goodwin was interrupted by a phone call from the governor. Though he does not know what was discussed, the grant, however, was never used. Colonel Goodwin told CBS that the money was returned, quote, because we didn't have anything to spend it on. In 1988, local authorities suffered a similar setback after Charles Black, a MENA area prosecutor, approached Governor Clinton with a request for funds for another MENA investigation. Quote, he said he would get on it and would get a man back to me, Mr. Black had told CBS. Quote, I never heard back. In 1990, Mr. Duncan informed Colonel Goodwin about Clinton supporter Dan Lassiter, who had been convicted of drug charges. I told Tommy Goodwin that I'd received allegations of a Lassiter connection to MENA. Now, this was according to Mr. Duncan. The charge that Barry Seal had used Mr. Lassiter's bond business to launder drug money was raised by a man named Terry Reed. Mr. Reed and journalist John Cummings recently published a book, now again this is in 1994, 
compromised Clinton, Bush, and the CIA, charging that Mr. Clinton, Mr. North, and others engaged in a massive conspiracy to smuggle cocaine, export weapons, and launder money. While much of the book rests on slim evidence and already published sources, the Lassiter-Seal connection is new. Thomas Mars, Mr. Lassiter's attorney, said that his client has never had a connection with Mr. Seal. But when Mr. Duncan tried to check out the allegations, his probe went nowhere, stalled from lack of funds and bureaucratic hostility. Not all that hostility came from the state level. When Duncan and Welch built a money laundering case in 1985 against Seal's associates, the U.S. attorneys in the case quote, directly interfered with the process, according to Mr. Duncan. Subpoenas were not issued. Witnesses were discredited. Interviews with witnesses were interrupted. And the wrong charges were brought before the grand jury. One grand grand jury member was so outraged by the prosecutor's actions that she broke the grand jury secrecy covenant. Not only had the case been blatantly mishandled, she later told a congressional investigator, but many jurors felt Quote, there was some type of government intervention, according to a transcript of the statement obtained by the journal. Something is being covered up. In 1987, Mr. Duncan was asked to testify before a House subcommittee on crime. Two days before his testimony, he says IRS attorneys working with the U.S. attorney for the Western Arkansas reinterpreted Rule 6, the grand jury secrecy law, forcing the exclusion of much of Mr. Duncan's planned testimony and evidence. Mr. Duncan also charges that a senior IRS attorney tried to force him to commit perjury by directing him to say he had no knowledge of a claim by Mr. Seal that a large bribe had been paid to Attorney General Edwin Meese. Mr. Duncan says he didn't make much of the drug dealer's claim, but did know about it. He refused to lie to Congress. Mr. Duncan, distressed by the IRS's handling of MENA, resigned in 1989. The article goes on to state that, meanwhile, the affair was sputtering through four federal forums, including a general accounting office probe derailed by the National Security Council. At one particularly low point, Mr. Duncan, then briefly a MENA investigator for a House subcommittee was arrested on Capitol Hill on a bogus weapons charge that was held over his head for nine months, then dismissed. His prized career in law enforcement in ruins, he found his way back to Arkansas and began to pick up the pieces. Mr. Duncan does not consider Mr. President Clinton a political enemy, and indeed he feels close to the president, a fellow Arkansan who shares the same birthday and thinks that Mina may turn out to be far more troublesome for the GOP figures, such as Mr. North, than any Arkansas players. Anyway, lots of crazy stuff there. Because you have Bill Clinton, you have the state's attorney general's office getting involved, you have the U.S. attorney general. I mean, it's getting kind uh, kind of wild. And Guy Gugliotta and Jeff Lean collaborated on the book Kings of Cocaine Inside the Median Cartel. And they write about Seal's fate. Now, remember, he had been sentenced to spend every night from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. at the Salvation Army House in Baton Rouge. 
And so they write, on the evening of February 19, 1986, Seal was shot to death in front of the Salvation Army Center, three weeks into his probation. When Seal pulled into the center's lot and parked, a man got out of a car behind the center's donation drop boxes and opened fire with a suppressed Mac-10 submachine gun. Seal was hit six times and died almost instantly. Six Colombians were quickly arrested in connection with the murder. Three of them, Luis Carlos Quintero Cruz, Miguel Velez, and Bernardo Antonio Vasquez, were indicted on state charges for capital murder. A fourth man was indicted separately on lesser charges, and evidence of direct involvement was insufficient for two who were released and then deported. But in, di- in addition to the state charges against the killers, federal charges were filed against Fabio Ochoa and Juan Pablo Escobar and a third cartel member, Rafael Cardona, for conspiring to violate Seal's civil rights by murdering him. And on that note, we conclude this week's episode of Who Killed Barry Seal? Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I hope to see you back next week for some more wild tales from the Mina Airport. Thank you to BetterHelp.com for sponsoring this week's episode. If you'd like to save 10%, please use my promo code WHO. As you know, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday. So if you enjoy this podcast or any of the other shows that I produce, you can help support with uh, my PayPal username at WilliamHuffman3 or via the Venmo app with my username at Bill-Huffman-3. And again, every contribution does help keep these slow burn podcasts running. You can also support the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Those five stars help keep important cases that I cover, such as all the unsolved cases that I've covered in the spotlight. If you'd like to stay up to date, on the cases that I have covered, as well as the new shows I have in the pipeline, you can always follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. You never know what you're going to get. So thank you guys so much again for listening. Until next time, as always, be healthy and stay safe. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America.
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. 